spookiest time of the year, there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. Werewolves, zombies, and demons of every variety, they've all descended on the normally sleepy town of Warren Valley, Ohio, where the holiday and all of its strange traditions are taken very seriously. All these traditions, jack-o'-lanterns, putting on costumes, handing out treats, they were started to protect us, but nowadays, no one really cares. Smashing jack-o'-lanterns. Stealing candy. <laughs> Let's cut a scary face this time. But don't forget to me with the eyes. Why are we here? To pay our respects to the dead? Halloween school bus massacre. <laughs> She's a big girl. She can take care of herself. Mom always said she was the runt of the litter. My mother wants Trick or Treat's an anthology film set on Halloween night. Uh, tells kind of four primary tales non-linearly, uh, personifying Halloween itself into uh, a pumpkin-headed trick-or-treater called Sam, uh, who kind of moves fluidly in and out of each story, um, sort of surveying the events as they unfold as I see as kind of like a referee of sorts, uh, ensuring that the uh, ancient rules of the holiday are adhered to. And, uh, of course, when they aren't, uh, he exacts, um, his, his devilish penalties. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Paul Farrell talking about Michael Doherty's Halloween horror anthology, Trick or Treat. Mr. Farrell is a writer who has penned pieces that can be found at Screamcast.com, as well as his own blog, Paul's Spooky Blog, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes. And he also acts as a rotating host for the new Dead Ringers podcast, the latest episode of which compares The Stepfather to Adam Wingard's The Guest. And it's an excellent listen, so make certain to check it out. Anyway, Mr. Farrell, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Actually, I should probably say thanks so much for being back on the show. Listeners may recall that Paul was one of our guests on our special Listener's Attack episode a while back where he talked about the stepfather there as well. So, uh, Paul, aside from the stepfather, when given the opportunity to choose any horror movie to talk about this time around, why go with Trick or Treat? Um, Well, like most horror fans, I build my year around Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. And to me, this movie is an intrinsic part of celebrating it. the film is a love letter to Halloween. Um, it's one of my personal favorite films. It, the feeling it elicits to me is kind of one of comfort, but also one of adrenaline and mysticism, which I think is tied to the holiday. And to me, you know, it's like the titular phrase of the holiday itself and the title of the film, Trick or Treat. You know, it's a film that treats that mantra 
with the respect that every kid in the world knows it deserves and adults too if they're cool uh it's it's about the the feeling i guess you get when uh you know when the when the air is crisp and you know red and brown leaves scatter the ground and you have the innate sense that everything that you merely sort of hours before believed was purely myth is now real and present and walking the streets alongside you and it's a feeling that's as electric as the air you're breathing. Um, and I think that this movie embodies that better than any film I've ever encountered. Yes, I agree with everything you just said. As a matter of fact, I think that's probably the end of the episode. That was that was as perfect a <laughs> wrap up on this movie as I think we could possibly have. So, uh, <laughs> no, I uh, sorry I, to, to do the ending first. <laughs> no, hey, no, it's completely cool. I think there's something fitting about that, considering you know the movie itself is kind of nonlinear, as you pointed out. I yeah. I love this movie. I think it's perfect. There isn't a single thing that I would change about this film. Every time I watch it, I just sort of marvel at how damn good it is. And you know, I <laughs> this episode came at the perfect time because I got to tell you, I as somebody who loves October and Halloween and the Halloween season, as it were, and fall, I have been bummed out recently because I am in southern Ohio and we have been experiencing what I can only describe as an extended summer that has sort of reached beyond August and September all the way into October, which damn it is meant to be my month. And I don't really care for summer all that much, you know, because of the hot weather and whatnot. And yet we have been dealing with temperatures here that have been like in the 80s and even the uh, the lower 90s. There hasn't been a single dead damn leaf hit the ground here recently at any point in what should have been this fall until the last two days ago, finally here in southern Ohio, it started to feel like fall. The leaves are finally starting to change and, you know, litter the ground. And the, the temperature is a nice, crisp 55 to 65, which is perfect for me. It finally feels like the season has arrived, you know, in mid-October. And, uh, you know, I, I just started a new job recently and I haven't been able to watch as many horror movies as I would have liked. And it felt like, you know, my, my favorite season was sort of slipping away from me. So now that the weather has changed and now that you chose Trick or Treat to watch, you know, I finally got to revisit that movie. It feels like I'm finally starting to enjoy my favorite time of year. So thanks so much for choosing that movie. And a movie, too, that's ultimately kind of replaced you know, in the last few years, John Carpenter's Halloween is being my go-to, you know, movie to celebrate the holiday. You know, back in the day, I would always uh, double feature Halloween 1 and 2 on Halloween night. And now, you know, I still try and fit those movies in, but uh, I, my go-to is now Doherty's Trick or Treat. I, I think it's kind of perfect. And what's crazy is I was trying to figure out how many years it's been now since I've uh, started making that my go-to watch. And I realized in doing research on this movie for this chat that – this movie is a decade old. You know, to think that this movie, The Trick or Treat, is a decade old is just insane. And yet, you know, I was looking at it, too, and it's like, well, okay, maybe it isn't exactly a decade old. You know, it was intended to be released back in October of 2007. You know, it played a few screenings here and there. And then, I don't know if you remember, but it just got pushed back and back and back and back. And, you know, I, I remember hearing the movie announced and seeing pictures from it and reading articles. And the wait for it was just torturous. But we didn't finally get to see it until it was until it was dumped onto home video in 2009, you know. And the fact that this movie didn't play widely on the big screen is just a crime to me. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think that's one of the, the saddest kind of things ab about this film's history, because I can only imagine, I've never obviously seen it on the big screen as a result, and I can only imagine how well it would play. Um, and I do remember 
it sort of existing and horror fans online talking about it and how great it was and me just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I remember the day it came out. I mean, I bought the Blu-ray day of its release. I was ready for it. I was so excited. And I'm pretty sure, you know, from that moment forward, I've watched it as my go-to, like you said, my go-to Halloween film. Um, You know, John Carpenter's Halloween obviously holds a special place in my heart, just like I'm sure it does with most horror fans. But I agree. I think think Trick or Treat embodies the holiday more than any other film Um, and, and can put me in that mood um that honestly reminds me of being a kid again in a way like because it, it's how i felt you know when i'd put my costume on and go out trick-or-treating it, it 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 brings that feeling back to life um from the moment uh that little black and white short film starts at the beginning i'm just <laughs> in it i'm 100 percent in the movie yeah absolutely and i <laughs> i um I don't mean to brag about this. I know I've brought it up on the show many times before, uh, although it's something that I like to share and not necessarily brag about. So anybody out there who's listened to the show quite a bit, uh, get ready to take a shot uh, because I am going to mention having worked at a movie theater once, you know, back in the <laughs> day. I uh, The day that Trick or Treat came out, I rushed out and got it. I was actually on break at work. And that evening after hours when everybody else was out of the building, I actually invited a handful of friends over and we watched it on the big screen. So I did Ooh. actually get to watch Trick or Treat on the big screen. It was a projected DVD, but, you know, it was still pretty great. And, you know, we laughed our asses off throughout the entire time, you know, the entire movie. It was – I think I knew even then, you know, after that first viewing that it would replace Carpenter's Halloween as my go-to, you know. And, you know, much like you, I'm not bashing Halloween. I, I adore Halloween. It's one of my favorite movies. But, you know, much like you said, there's something about Trick or Treat that perfectly embodies everything, you know, in the uh, – in the season, I mean, you know, it, it has everything, you know, it has werewolves and a vampire and the spirit mm-hmm. of Halloween and a creepy urban legend and uh, a child killing slasher and ghouls. And not only that, the film sort of runs the gamut for the types of experiences that one can have at Halloween. You know, Doherty's talked about this in interviews, but, you know, we in this film, we see Halloween through a child's eyes and then through older kids mm-hmm. eyes and through the points of view of young adults and middle-aged folks briefly, and even the elderly. And, you know, it's wonderful that the movie shows the holiday as meaning different things to different people, you know? And I think as a result, it's kind of the ultimate celebration of Halloween, which I think is, you know, that's why, to me, it's a perfect movie to watch on Halloween now. Yeah, I I think it's sort of the, the first movie I've seen that understands that Halloween exists as like a border between childhood and adulthood. Um, it's, it's kind of like when the lines are most blurred. <laughs> um, and I think that's the easiest way to kind of sum it up. It, it's, it's, you know, the, and this film's all about the traditions of Halloween how they're, how they're steeped in, you know, protecting the innocent from the dark and insidious, uh, creatures and characters that sort of lurk in the shadows. Um, but it's also the time of year where we're most drawn to those things. Um, you know, to the sort of the macabre, underbelly of the world um that is external as well as internal um and the movie explores that in every short um from a different perspective and i think that's how it accomplishes it you know because some of them are like you said some are from an adult's perspective a kid's perspective but they're all blurring that line where you know we're either allowing ourselves to grow older than we actually are or allowing ourselves to 
access that part of our ourselves that's that's still a kid or still underdeveloped um and it sort of makes it okay um by way of the the traditions that halloween represents and allows for um yeah so i i think that's that's a really good way of kind of looking at the movie as a whole you know yeah and i think the movie itself you know like structurally kind of supports that idea by having the tales weave in and out of one another rather right. than yeah. simply presenting you know one tale then the next tale then the next tale which i mean they kind of do that but it also kind of does the pulp fiction thing where you know are we watching an anthology or are we watching one film about several different stories that bleed in and out of each other and you know i go back and forth on that i did introduce the movie as being an anthology but I don't know. I think the case could be made that it's, you know, it's kind of its own thing as well. And, you know, I I, mentioning the different types of experiences in Halloween, too. You know, I it was funny watching it again and sort of trying to hone in on that, like pay attention to uh, what it means for each sort of like group. And again, Doherty's talked about this, too. But, you know, like when we have the innocence in the movie, you know, Halloween is about dressing up in candy. And Mm -hmm. you have the older kids, and it's all about mischief in a way and playing, you know, a potentially cruel prank. And then with the young adults, it's all about sex. And, you know, with the elderly, you know, Halloween is kind of a nuisance, And uh, which I love that tale. That's actually my favorite tale, the Mr. Krieg meet Sam tale, I think, is is brilliant. Actually, you know, I should probably go ahead and ask, which out of all of them is your favorite tale? Could you zero in on one specific one? Oh, that is tough. Um, So... I am partial to the school bus massacre, I would say. Ah, nice. Um, for several reasons. One, I love uh, when a story has like a myth within the story sort of thing, like a like an urban legend that exists unique to that story. Um, I love that, that conceit. I think it adds depth not only to the narrative, but also – depth to the characters you're you're sort of experiencing in the present because there's typically a parallel right so like with that particular one you've got uh uh, ronda right who they kind of label as uh as an idiot savant uh or you know just somebody who's who's different than them that they're able to take advantage of and then you tell this story about eight you know quote unquote disturbed children Um, and then just the stylized way that was shot and kind of told the, the sort of unsettling warped Halloween costumes that those children are dressed in as they're chained in the bus, (laughs) the way the, the camera slowly goes over the edge of the, of the, um, quarry. And then you just see the bus kind of sinking. Like the, 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 the style he employs to tell that story is so, unsettling and and kind of creepy but but also very very steeped in halloween mythology um and then when you come back to the present and you now have them sort of kind of taking ronda to be you know frightened by the story and like as a sort of like a rite of passage for for them in a way um you know you you you're kind of have you're looking at ronda in a different way as an audience i think because you just saw you know, the unfair way these, these other kids were treated. Um, and then at the same time, I think you're, you're put into a mode where you're thinking about the myth as well. And, and, and your mind's on a different level. The complexity of the story starts making you think differently about something that otherwise would have been just a straightforward short. 
Um, so even though they only have, you know, 20 minutes to tell the story, it feels more like a feature, more fleshed out. Um, so I, I'm just, I was really impressed with the way that story was told and I, you know, and I like how it's kind of showing that Halloween, you know, opens up both sides of the spectrum for victory and defeat. You know, it, it the expectations of the monstrous are impacted as much as they are for the meek. Um, so in a lot of these stories, you have characters that appear innocent um, or appear as the victim that then subvert the expectations of sort of the predator in the equation. Um, so to me, you know, obviously that's with, with Rhonda at the end sort of becomes and not the punisher, but kind of allows for the, the punishment and defeat of those other kids, um, and walks away as sort of the victor of the situation. And in a way, her innocence was sort of her disguise and the thing that allowed her to walk away potentially stronger. Um, and, and that's also rooted in her deep respect for the holiday. And, and I, I see kind of, I love the, the last shot of that where she passes Sam and they don't really acknowledge one another, but just him, his presence there next to her and neither of them acknowledging the other to me showcases, you know, everything she's done is acceptable within the confines of the holiday. And she's going to walk away sort of free of the situation. Um, and I think again, it's sort of the exclamation point that says, you know, there is no such thing as victim, you know, or predator. There's just this blurred line in the middle. Um, and, and the way you navigate that is through the, the traditions that, that are in place and respecting those traditions. And I, and I love it. I just absolutely love everything about that story. And I think it, it represents a lot of what the other stories are representing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting that you point that out in a way she gets a pass, not once, but twice, I think, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the ghouls certainly let her go. I mean, maybe she escapes, but I, I sort of, I like the idea that they would have let her pass anyway, because much like them, you know, much as they were when they were alive, she is kind of an outcast in a way. And I think there would have been a sympathy there from the part of the ghouls. It feels very EC Comics in a way, her being able oh, to yeah. walk away from that as her, you know, well, not her friends, but as the as the kids she was accompanying there to that pit, you know, they are sort of punished in a way that she isn't. But you're right, because she's also somebody who respects the traditions of Halloween Sam sort of lets her pass, too. It's almost like she passes through two gates, you know, on her way out at the end. And she just sort of Mm -hmm. walks blissfully away into the rest of the night, you know, untouched by all the horrors that could have, you know, very easily sort of claimed her as well. And I love that one of the final shots of the movie is her sort of walking away triumphantly down that city street with that or the small town street with, uh, you know, the carved jack-o'-lantern in tow. Yeah, yeah, and obviously the jack-o'-lanterns are typically present throughout the stories, you know, blowing the blowing out of the jack-o'-lantern at the beginning, you know, leading to uh uh Leslie Bibbs character's sort of demise. Um and I think right before the the kids from the bus sort of rise out of the out of the water, they yeah, they they blow out like the last jack-o'-lantern, you know, so sort of getting rid of that kind of protection 
that they potentially have. And I also think there's a there's an element of sort of they kind of create the rules of their situation and then don't follow them, you know, <laughs> and, and therefore they're punished. And Halloween, I think what it's saying, too, is sort of like Halloween's a night of of magic and and power. And you can sort of will things into existence because of that. Um, and just as like we were talking about with sort of the, you know, the, the kind of amplifying both the, the victim and the predator and those sorts of things. I think it also amplifies the fears of the timid and the cruelty of, of those that are fierce, you know, so, so someone who might be internally more prone to that sort of cruelty, it, it brings it out a bit more on Halloween and it amplifies it. And those who are fearful, it's going to amplify them, bring it out a bit more, but both things can be used to a, a person's advantage or disadvantage. And it's all how they make, you know, their own decisions once faced with those fears. And I think that's what I really like about trick or treat as well is that it, it doesn't box characters into any one sort of archetype. It, it allows for them to, to experience extremes and then make decisions in the face of those extremes that will determine their fate. Um, and yes, I agree. It, it has that that comic feel, obviously, with the opening credits being comics that that actually kind of show you elements of the stories you're about to watch. It's very creep show esque to me, which is another thing I absolutely love about it um, is that sentimentality um, and letting you know that hey, you're going to watch something that is that there are going to be tales of morality, but they're going to be skewered and gray areas. And, and there is no sort of right or wrong. There's just the magic of the night and how you navigate it. Um, and that is sort of scary, you know, that, that, that there isn't a clear path. Um, and, and I, and that's one thing I love about Sam uh, is Sam doesn't directly interact with you unless you blatantly violate the rules, you know? Um, and that's when he's going to interact. Um, and his interaction with you is going to be based on, to me, with how the movie is laid out, you know, the way in which you broke the rule, as well as, you know, deep, deep down your respect for the tradition of the holiday and what it represents. Um, and it, your, your penalty will be more severe based on, you know, how far along the spectrum of respect or disrespect that you actually fall. Yeah. Um, it's funny too, that you mentioned the idea of Halloween being sort of, you know, there being that magic to it in a way. And you're right. I think those kids, they do in telling that story and in telling the, uh, you know, the tale about the, the school bus with the kids and what happened to them and then sort of playing that prank. They are invoking something, I think, more so than simply, you know, uh, giving a bit of exposition or backstory. And then by their disrespect, I think, you know, they, they sort of bring their own fates about on themselves. And, yeah, I mean, that is that that's very, very easy comics. And I think you're right. As a result, the movie feels kind of like creep show, which in its own way was you know, kind of a throwback to, uh, you know, the old Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror books and whatnot. I mean, you know, not only do we have the opening and closing montages in this film with comic-style artwork, but the entire movie, the entire tone, it feels like a modernized, living EC comic. And as much as I love it, 
you know, rewatching it again after having revisited Creep Show a while back to uh, do an episode of Scream Addicts, where I, you know, as much as I love them, it further reminds me that movies like this are all too rare. You know, great horror yeah. anthologies that sort of uh, celebrate the genre rather than sort of, I don't know, wallowing in the worst aspects of them, which, you know, I think some attempts at recent anthologies have sort of done. Uh, I, I just, I miss them. I miss the fun of anthologies. Yeah, I, I absolutely adore anthologies. Um, and I agree. I don't think there's enough of them. I think sometimes modern anthologies that, so I think one thing that makes something like creep show really work is having one person sort of at the head of what that movie is. So like Romero guiding the whole project, you know, as director, I think sometimes when you when you do these anthologies now with like, you know, four or five different people that aren't really sometimes not always, but interacting with each other directly, like just kind of going off and making their own project. The problem with that is they're not always going to mesh and they're not always going to be different enough to make for a unique uh, storytelling experience, which I think is what the best anthologies do. Uh, They provide you um, multiple angles, multiple subgenres. They're they're varied and unique, but at the same time, they feel connected. There's tissue there. Um, And I sometimes think now the mentality for like a micro budget anthology is going to be, well, you know, we don't have enough money to produce a feature. So let's each go make our own film and we'll tie them together and it'll be an anthology, which I respect. And there are some of those that I love, but I think it's difficult to make something like trick or treat or creep show in that manner. Um, and, and do it successfully. I, you know, I did really enjoy, uh, tales of Halloween. Um, Same here. I thought that was such a blast and I, have been I that's a movie that I don't think people talk about enough yet I think it's you know it's still pretty new in some ways and based on its release I think it's going to take time to get out there I've showed you know I'm one of those people that like whenever I see a movie like that I don't think I show everybody I can so I last year I held a screen like a party where I invited like 20 people over and we all watched it and everybody loved it so it's you know I think it's one of those movies that over time will become very much loved but again I think one of the reasons that really works is even though there's a lot of different directors it's interconnected by by sort of the tissue of that night. Um, and it doesn't you know. feel entirely, you know, those stories run the gamut. I mean, there are, you know, so many different voices and so many different right. types of tales there. And yet it does feel cohesive. It does feel yes. like of yeah. a single piece. And, you know, I, I think you're right that a lot of anthologies, they feel sort of scattershot in a way. It's like, ah, you know, this is really no different than just watching a bunch of random short films, you know, under the same title. And that's not really... I don't know. That's that's not the sort of anthology that I like. But I think you're right. I, I should have mentioned Tales of Halloween in the same breath as Trick or Treat and Creep Show because I think it is really, really damn good. And I think you're right. It's going to take while a while for people to maybe come around to it. But um, I to me, it goes into the October rotation straight away. I mean, you know, there's oh, yeah. Carpenter's Halloween. There's Trick or Treat. Tales from Halloween is in there. The WNUF Halloween special is in there. Like, yeah, you know, there. Yeah, uh, it which is an anthology, but I mean, I God, I love that movie too. But um, oh yeah, but yeah, that is that is a pretty great one. And you know, I anything that celebrates Halloween, I'm probably going to be a sucker for, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but um, 
But yeah, you know, going back to Trick or Treat, I think it does it so well. I think it does it better than any other movie that I can think of. Um, and again, I, it feels weird every time I say that. It feels like I'm always taking a knock at Carpenter's Halloween when I say that, just because <laughs> it was my go-to for the longest time, just because it's one of my favorite movies. But, you know, when you look at Halloween, it really only covers one sliver of what the holiday can be. And it has the one villain at its heart. And I kind of wish that as much as I love Michael Myers and as much as I love some of the later sequels, you know, the ones that even people don't care for so much, you know, I, I really dig Halloween four and five. Oh and yeah. The producers cut of six. I love Halloween H two. I despise <laughs> yeah. Halloween resurrection zombies. Halloween. I have issues with, but I love his Halloween too. You know, I'm glad that all of those movies exist, but part of me wishes that Carpenter's, you know, that, that, idea that he had for the Halloween title to be a banner for an anthology series. You know, we had Michael Myers in 1 and 2, then Halloween 3 was Season of the Witch. I really wish that Halloween 4, 5, 6, 7, everything from that point on had been a different story celebrating a different aspect of the holiday so that you know what? Maybe Dirty's Trick or Treat coming out in 2007 or 2009, maybe that could have been like Halloween 28, you know? Uh, yeah. Because it I, feels like he manages to do what Carpenter perhaps wanted to do with an entire film franchise as opposed to trying to do it in one 90-minute, you know, uh, single film. No, I, I completely agree. Um, I would love an alternate reality where there were 20 random <laughs> Halloween movies and that was the franchise. I mean, that would be great. I agree with you. I mean, I, full disclosure, Halloween was the first like big franchise my brother and I got really into. So I, I just Fair. have this weird special affinity for that entire fran. Like I like the ones that everybody hates. I love Halloween four. I think Halloween four <laughs> is fucking great. so amazing. And anytime someone says a negative word against it, I'll go to bat for Halloween four. And the ending is, is one of the best endings to a horror movie period. Um, but you know, when it comes down to Halloween three is fantastic. People are starting to finally catch up to that. It seems like uh, in recent years, Halloween three is getting a lot of love and I, and I'm, very, very happy. It almost feels um, like we've gotten to the point with Halloween 3 where it's – I'm old enough to remember when nobody liked Halloween 3. Yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. watching it and feeling like I needed to dislike it because everybody disliked <laughs> it. You know, same thing with Halloween 6. Yeah. I remember catching even the theatrical cut of Halloween 6 in theaters. It was around the same time that I became a Fangoria reader and just reading letters pages and, you know, all the snide remarks that people would make about it on, you know, message boards online, which was also relatively new back then. Um I, I, I just had this feeling. It's like, okay, I should probably hate Halloween 3 and Halloween 6. But deep down, I kind of like them both. And people – it feels like people have definitely come around on Halloween 3. It feels like that's almost the rule now that Halloween 3 is a good film. Uh, Halloween 6 maybe hasn't quite made it there yet, but I think the producer's cut helped quite a bit. I will never, ever, ever get to the point – where I think that Halloween Resurrection is a decent movie. I despise that damn movie. No, I don't worry. I mean, so, yes, I, I cannot express how much I hate Halloween uh, Resurrection. <laughs> um, it is blasphemy in so many different ways. I mean, just the fact that you have, I, I don't even want to give it lip service, but, and I don't like to, yeah, I no, I agree. Halloween Resurrection <laughs> is, is not a good film. Um, There's so much wrong with the, uh, the, the fact that the opening, yeah. like so sort oh, of, I know. crassly oh, I know. kills a heroine yeah. that we've loved up until that point in such right. a sort of unceremonious way that kills me. Especially considering that, you know what? If you think about it, only a few years down the line, the that timeline was rebooted anyway with Rob Zombie's Halloween, and you know now we're going to be getting a new reboot. So in a way. 
Halloween H2O could have been the end to the original timeline in a way, and it would have ended in a perfect way with Laurie killing Michael and then, you know, yeah. the, that, that moment where she closes her eyes and she's controlling her breathing and she's pretty much faced her fears and conquered them. That is the perfect way for that run of movies to have ended. And then they did one more that feels like it's every bit as sort of classless as the worst Friday the 13th movie it's just a shitty slasher movie that kills her in a really terrible way and yeah i the rest of the movie is awful i don't care if starbuck is in it or not i oh my god i hit <laughs> and his mask his damn mask <laughs> well, who I the think, hell thought that yeah. mask was a good idea i i think the biggest issue i have with i mean i yeah there's a lot to say about resurrection but i think my biggest issue is one of the things i really respect about the halloween franchise and i'm talking about the the prime franchise, right? Like one, two, four, five, six is unlike Freddie and unlike Jason, that franchise always took Myers very seriously. Yes. He was always scary or the intention was he was always scary. He was, he was pure evil. You know, it never did a, uh, Jason lives. It never did a Freddy's dead. There's no silly Halloween movie until resurrection. Resurrection is silly. It treats Myers in a silly way. Like he, you know, you have like Buster rhymes, like karate chopping Myers. You have a girl scream and a glass breaks. Like you have silly, silly things and tonally, it just, it, it's wrong. Busta it's Rhymes not, as Michael Myers chastising Michael Myers. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's <laughs> wrong. And it, it's completely against everything that franchise was and is. And and at, at the point where, I mean, to me, at the point where you're on the seventh movie in a franchise, there's only two reasons you're making it. One, to sort of cash in. That's sort of the, uh, the, uh, uh, I don't know the pessimistic way of looking at it, but the other is for the fans, right? You, you know, the reason you keep a franchise going, the the heart reason should be well because they're big, big fans of this. That's why there's seven. That's why there's nine. That's why there's twelve. Like, you know that that should. I, I, I in my heart of hearts, I hope someone somewhere realizes by the time you're on like movie ten, you're making this for the fans, and. If that's the case, there are certain things you should honor. You know, I get that every director should be able to step in and have their own sort of vision to it. But like there's certain things you, you should honor about that franchise. Like if you want to do your own thing, don't step into movie 10. Go make your own movie. That's how I, that's you know, cool. I don't I don't get why you would even want to do the, the seventh or eighth movie in a franchise if you want to just go do your own thing. Um, and, and as much as I want invention and, and something new. There's just certain things that you have to, I believe you, you should rightfully honor. And I think resurrection represents the, the, the tonal opposite of everything that franchise stands for. I love that. We're talking about Halloween resurrection somehow, but, uh, this is scream uh, addicts. We go, yeah, we yeah, run it off is. on tangents. Right. It's You're completely right. cool. <laughs> but that, that was always my primary issue with everything that was going on in that film. Um, is it just the opposite of everything I loved about Halloween? I remember when it was going to come out in Fangoria, um, the website. Um, it's because when was it a magazine ever? Um, 
the, <laughs> back in 2002, I think, um, they were doing these daily articles and interviews leading up to the release of that movie where they were having, uh, you know, the stars talk about them making the movie. And they had Rick Rosenthal, you know, and they really played up the fact that Rosenthal directed Halloween 2, which I love. Uh, you know, I loved yeah. it then. I love it now. And I somehow became convinced that it was going to be a great movie. And I rounded up a group of friends to go and watch it. My theater didn't get it, but one about 20 minutes away did. So, you know, there's a little bit of a minor road trip. We go there. The auditorium wound up selling out. Uh, it was a great crowd. But about 20 or 25 minutes in, I could feel all of my friends sort of turn and look Ooh. at me and judge because it was my fault. <laughs> it was my fault, us being there. And uh, yeah. I've seen that movie twice. I watched it once in theaters, and I watched it once when uh, it hit disc to give it a second shot. Uh, I bought that big Scream Factory box set, and it's, you know, I the idea that I had was that I was eventually going to, uh, maybe I'll do it this year, but I was going to start from the very beginning and watch everything in that box set beginning to end. I don't know that I'm ever going I, – I, I'm probably going to skip Resurrection. I refuse to believe it, it exists. I think it's a very well-funded fan film that somehow made it to the big screen. Um, <laughs> I hate that movie so much. Anyway, I'm sorry. Trick or treat. Um, how the <laughs> hell okay. did we go there? I apologize to you and listeners. No, but, okay. but, yeah, yeah no, right. I, I completely understand why you love the school bus massacre. I, I dig it too. And not only that, like there is something cool about – you know, I, I sort of love the – any town USA feel that the movie has at times, you know, it's meant to be Ohio, but it feels like it might take place in any small American town, but it's funny because it's actually set in Ohio and I'm from Ohio and I couldn't help, but eventually notice, you know, as a fan of the movie that Doherty himself is from Columbus. So, Hmm. you know, the big Halloween parade in trick or treat, you know, it reminds me of Ohio's own big Halloween parade. And I wonder if Doherty wasn't aware of that and was sort of mimicking that, but, when it comes to the school bus massacre, that urban legend of the haunted school bus in Trick or Treat, you know, it isn't terribly unlike Helltown, Ohio's own urban legend about a creepy haunted school bus. And which do you know anything about Helltown, Ohio? No, I don't. <gasps> OK, another tangent. Um, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I want to hear about it. <laughs> OK, you know how most towns are lucky, I think. If they have one enduring urban legend, you know, one tale that can be told about this specific place or this specific town or that one that one area or place that you stay away from because of any number of reasons. Helltown, Ohio, has enough urban legends to fill about a season of the X-Files. It's this little place called Boston Summit. It's about 30 minutes southeast of Cleveland. Um, I mean... (laughs) There, I, I'm sure it's all nonsense, but there is something about the place. It, for one, it's a ghost town. Uh, there's nobody living there. One. Two, there are two churches in the town that have apparently been converted into black churches, like satanic churches with upside-down oh, wow. crosses. Uh, there is a haunted school bus that is abandoned in a field. Apparently, if you drive there at a certain time of night, there will be a hearse that chases after you with one headlight. Uh, there are hooded Satanists who prowl the... Uh, the surrounding forests. There's a 20-foot python that you might happen across if you find yourself in the wrong part of town. Uh, there are mutants, apparently, who were uh, <laughs> who were victims of a chemical spill that wound up running everybody out of town in the first place. There are so many different wow. like urban legends connected to this place. I actually I, I I became obsessed by the place 
about a half a decade ago, and I wrote a script that incorporated that into it. And yet the thing is, I've never seen the place in person. And it's funny because right before you and I started recording, I was just uh, solidifying plans to finally, after years, make the trip up to Helltown and uh, scout around it for Halloween weekend. So uh, I'm going to do that and then maybe hit one of the haunted house attractions in Cleveland. But, yeah, I I got to imagine that Doherty was aware of that in some way because, I mean, the, the, the haunted school bus from Helltown, it very much seems like it could have been the, uh, the inspiration for the haunted school bus and trick-or-treat. But, um, you know, it's funny, though, in thinking about that and thinking about this movie being set in Ohio, it makes me wonder if little Sam, you know, the, the spirit of Halloween, as it were, if he's meant to be a regional horror villain, you know, if <laughs> he only haunts that specific area or if he's available elsewhere, you know, wherever he is needed throughout the entire world to keep people respecting the spirit of Halloween or you know, is it is it merely he is one of many such spirits that sort of stand guard for the holiday, you know, or is he just Ohio's? I mean, that's something that I'd love to see a sequel handle. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you bring up that stuff about Helltown. Well, if one, I, I got to read up on that place. That sounds amazing. Uh, and also, I'd love, yeah, you you have to finish that script or go for it because that would be a great movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I definitely... You know, the, the idea of urban legends and the idea of mythology is so is ever present, right, in, in Trick or Treat. And, um, you know, his influence you know, from something like that, yeah, I mean, is, to me would be very prevalent. I, and I think it's I think the movie is also about buying the importance of buying into those legends and the danger that also comes along with that. You know, like we talked about the kids sort of potentially willing some of their beliefs into reality and Sam being present there for it. And, and, you know, I think that's also like, like you mentioned Krieg, like you really like the Krieg story at the end. Um, Love it. You know, I think what I really like about the Krieg story, one occurring at the end of the movie and, and what that story really is to me is like, so it's this, it's this cantankerous old man, right. On Halloween, who's like, shunning children and doesn't want to give them treats and all these different things. And of course, Sam comes and, and gets into this, this fight with him. But I think the conflict between Krieg and Sam is as much about Krieg's disbelief in the otherworldly or refusal to accept it as it is about like their actual physical altercation. Um, and I think like it coming at the end of the film is the cer- the perfect sort of exclamation point on what the movie's saying, because Sam is facing this or forcing this guy to to face the otherworldly things that that he's been turning away from. And that battle is the manifestation of that emotional journey Um, leading up to Krieg demasking. I think that's why Krieg has to demask Sam is he has to see that Sam isn't human, that he isn't just another kid tormenting him. Um, And you know, the, the little, the little moment where Sam doesn't actually kill him. He just takes the candy and go leaving Krieg alive. You know, I don't see that as sort of a twist. I see that as Sam has one, he accomplished it. You know, he, he Krieg now has to sort of sit there and wallow in the reality that these otherworldly things exist. And he's now broken, not physically, but completely mentally. And, and, of course, the reveal of who Krieg actually is <laughs> as the bus driver then shows you why that realization is so very terrifying. And it's then that 
you know, those those spirits sort of sort of show up to uh, claim what what they're owed from Krieg. And it's only after Krieg is 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 accepting of the existence or the potential existence of something like a spirit or or a creature like that, that they're able to finally sort of pounce on him. It's interesting um, that you say that, though, because I had always and that's I I can't disagree with you. It's just that I had never considered that that Sam's taking the candy was intentional because I always felt like, you know, Krieg being targeted by Sam to some extent had to be Krieg's, you know, not merely his own disbelief, although I agree with that, too. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at that final segment, but also because of his disrespect of the holiday, not unlike Leslie Bibb's character at the very beginning, you know, blowing out the right. jack-o'-lantern and, you know, tearing down all the Halloween decorations while Halloween is still, you know, occurring. And, you know, Sam, the way I always took it is that Sam absolutely intended to kill Krieg with that, you know, that would-be fatal blow with the sharpened sucker, which is such a great image. But uh, Yeah, right, right. And that he accidentally stabs the candy bar that happened to be on, you know, Krieg's belly or stomach or whatever when he knocked it over onto himself. And almost by accident, Krieg has given an offering to the spirit of Halloween, much like we do when we give kids candy when they show up on our doorstep. Krieg has given Sam his candy. He gave him an offering, and as a result, Sam almost cannot kill him. You know, he, he's been paid off, and so he has to leave. And uh, But it makes me wonder, too, why Sam chose Krieg in the first place. And I, I hate to say it, as many times as I watched the movie, I don't think it occurred to me until this final viewing that Sam had just come from the quarry. Sam had just come from the place where those ghouls rose again. And so in a way, you know, maybe Sam chose Krieg because he was disrespecting the holiday. Maybe he chose him because, you know, I think Doherty essentially created Halloween's version of Mr. Scrooge in Krieg, you know, and maybe that's why Sam shows up on his doorstep. But I wonder if Sam didn't see a wrong that he might attempt to right in some way, having come in close proximity to the, uh, you know, the children from the school bus massacre. And so he sort of leads them to Krieg's doorstep in a way. Um, you know, I don't know. I Maybe I'm just rambling here, but I, those are many of the reasons that I adore that final story. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it too. And another thing I really like about this film is there there are, especially with Sam, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. Um, and I do see Sam as somebody who, wait, he creates opportunities um, for other people and characters and creatures to sort of, like you said, achieve justice, um, or at least justice in the eyes of Halloween, as I think Sam is, I mean, I guess to answer, and you asked me a question I never really answered, (laughs) is Sam, you know, regional or is he, is he Halloween? I, I guess I like to see Sam as representing Halloween as a whole. I think he's a I think he's a spirit sort of tied to Halloween um, from some ancient, you know, long time ago. And there is a graphic novel that sort of goes into that a bit. Yes. um, Which we could probably talk about in a minute. But I I personally see Sam as omnipresent. I think he's wherever, you know, the mystical is occurring. Um, which I don't think is ever in the same place. And I think it's based on opportunity. And I think it, at this particular junction, this town had a lot of things that coincided 
to create a particularly powerful connected event. And that's why Sam is there. And I think every Halloween that could be a different place, whether or not he could exist simultaneously in two places at once. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him. (laughs) Well, I mean, Um, in that way, he could be Halloween's version of Santa Claus in a way. You know, how does Santa Claus make it to all of those children's houses? (laughs) How does he get down all of those chimneys in one night? Well, the answer is he does it the exact same way that Sam shows up and brings justice to any number of bad people disrespecting Halloween or, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, I I would I I would love to see Sam sell Coca-Cola. Um, I would like to see him become that popular. How great would that That'd be? That'd be great. Oh man, I'd love it. Yeah, I, I, I just, I love that final segment. But I love the entire movie too. I mean, you know, Cox is so great in the role, and oh yeah, you know, looking like John Carpenter, um, <laughs> which is just bizarre, but kind of great. And you know, the segment is, you know, in one segment, it's funny and it's spooky and it's downright scary, and you know, it has that amazing ending, and you know. Looking at it, that tone sort of really goes throughout the whole movie, though. You know, funny and fun and spooky and scary and sometimes splat-sticky in a way. And even pretty damn disturbing at times, you know, a couple of times throughout the movie. But I think it's really interesting that those tones aren't sort of singularly contained in each story. You know, one story is this, one story is that. You know, each tale sort of balances all of those tones. And... Doherty, I think, does it sort of masterfully. It's amazing to watch that film and realize that this is a guy who, you know, I believe it was his debut feature, and that's kind of incredible. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, he had he had written several larger films, but I mean, for this to be his directorial debut and how complex the story is and how sleek it looks, I mean, this this feels like a movie that was made by a seasoned veteran filmmaker. Yes, um, it does not feel like a first time film, and and, you know, and I, I'm a fan of Krampus as well. So in my eyes, this guy has done two very impressive things. Um, and I can't wait to see what he does with the upcoming Godzilla sequel. Oh, yeah, yeah, Although, yeah, no, I got to I... say, like, uh, the idea of Doherty doing a Godzilla sequel makes me, like, infinitely more interested in a Godzilla sequel. Yeah, Even though I didn't yeah. hate the last one. But, I mean... Right. You know, if I, I didn't exactly walk out of the last Godzilla movie saying I need to see a sequel. But now that Doherty's doing it, I guess I need to see that sequel. And yet at the same time, like, you know, you look at Trick or Treat and you look at Krampus. Like, I, I kind of want Michael Doherty to do more Michael Doherty movies. Let somebody else tackle Big G and, you know, maybe he could do, I don't know, damn it, maybe Trick or Treat 2, which was, you know, sort of announced years ago and we still don't have it. I can't believe that this isn't a long-running franchise at this point. It's it's upsetting to me that we don't have Trick or Treat 2 or 3 or 7 by now. Yeah, I I I agree. I would I always would prefer especially a filmmaker like this who has such a unique voice and such a talent for storytelling and um such a love a clear love of the genre. I I would love for him to be doing original properties and not sequels to huge budget movies. Whenever that happens, I I guess I try to look at it optimistically and say, well, you know, maybe it's one of those like he does this and then he gets to do whatever he wants. You know, like if he makes this big, successful film, maybe that is what allows for Trick or Treat 2 or, you know, whatever else he he ends up doing. You know, that's why I always say it's like if if Pixar needs to make 100 Cars movies to give us movies like Inside Out, then go for it. You know, it's like the the. As long as I think in the end we get 
these movies when when he's ready to tell those stories i'm happy it's it's when they potentially turn to those big budget movies and never come back that's when i'm sad you know and, and i wish that um you know we would have more of that like you know when when sam raimi went back and did drag me to hell that was like such a wonderful homecoming yes um and it, it was such a breath of fresh air um and i my only sadness with that is is we haven't gotten anything from him since then that's that's like that going on a decade um huh? yeah and it's just <laughs> you, you, yeah it was almost like a cruel tease you know it's like here's drag me to hell see i still got it anyway Back to huge budget Disney movies. And not, it's only, like, no. not only got it, but my God, the man had refined oh, yeah. his abilities yeah, yeah, yeah. and he oh. had bigger toys to play with. And he said, yeah. look, this is what I used to do. Only look what I can do now. Yeah, Don't you love yeah, this? Yeah. Don't you love this? Isn't it's this another... amazing? Wouldn't you like to see 12 more of these? Well, here's an Oz prequel. <laughs> yeah, I know. Drag Me to Hell is another one of my Halloween favorites. I watch it every year. Um, and, and again, another movie that balances tone extremely well and, and tying back to your original point, you're, you're right. The show does invite tangents, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think the best, the story that best represents the tonal shifts of this, of this movie would be, uh, uh, principal Wilkins, Dylan Baker's character yes. who, who, by the way, his performance in this is just one of the greatest performances ever i love it it's so fun and so entertaining not, he doesn't get the credit that he deserves no. for being as oh damn my good gosh. as he is yeah he's so good he his performance in this I, it kind of reminds me not of the same performance but of uh uh the mayor in uh slither like how i feel about that character it's like it's like a it's like a sort of like sort of a loathsome character, but I still kind of like him. That would be the worst uh, buddy movie ever that I would absolutely watch. <laughs> I, I would be so down for that movie. Um, but no, I, I love the like the tone is just constantly hopping. You know, it's it's hilarious one moment. It's scary the next. It's disturbing. And then like you got these like like the darkly sweet ending with him like spending time with his son yeah you know, it's, it's, it's like strangely kind of, like, cute yeah right i love it like like you know and and but it's all building it's it's building mounting tension because it's you know when the first time you see it it's suggesting that wilkins is going to murder his son like that's that's what they sort of pretend it's building towards like the son is a, a hindrance not a protege um, even though there are lines about how his father taught him and, you know, I mean, there's definitely foreshadowing that he's, you know, that his son is kind of the same as he is. Um, but I also like that the movie begins with sort of, you know, the character, the character that he initially kills the, 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 you know, the boy, the, with the little, you know, uh, the blonde fro, uh, he, you know, he, he breaks pumpkins. he, doesn't just take one of the candy. Um, so he is a candidate that sort of Principal Wilkins is kind of allowed to take in my eyes because Wilkins ultimately isn't punished for, you know, taking that boy. He's he's punished for preying on or attempting to prey on an innocent, which is a whole other thing. But like, you know, so I see it as the movie starts out by giving us sort of a loathsome, repressed adult who and, and I guess I, I fill in the blanks of this story, you know, I, for whatever reason, I look at him as someone who all year long, he's kind of this repressed. I love that he's a principal. 
because he, <laughs> he clearly despises children. So like, you know, the repression obviously perme- permeates his his sort of day to day life. And then when he's allowed to kind of do what he wants to do, it's like gleefully and without hesitation. Um, and, and then you get these like comedic moments where he he kills the he kills the kid and he just immediately buries him. So it's just like that act of murder. Um, but he's doing it within respect to the holiday. And he even talks about that. Like, that's our first introduction to, well, you know, these this holiday has traditions and these traditions are here to protect us. It's like one of the first things he says. And he says it to the boy he's about to murder. Um, and in some ways, I think Wilkins probably looks at it as he's not murdering the boy. The holiday is because the boy took the candy um, and and the candy in, in and of itself was was poison. You know, like the boy broke the rules and is now subject to the punishment of that um and just the way that that story plays with our expectations of character of humor of fear um is such a great way to engage us um at the beginning of the story um I, I it's it's just such a wonderful introduction it is yeah and in that way i don't think wilkins is too far removed from sam in a strange way like he As far as respecting the holiday, you know, and uh, but at the same time, like one wonders if Sam doesn't sort of if he doesn't lead him to his doom, then he certainly presides over it. You know, in the uh, the other story, the sort of weird sequel to Wilkins story, uh, which is Surprise Party, uh, which I I love. I, you know, I love all of the stories, but there's a lot of energy in this one and a lot of fun where we have the. uh, you know, the, the, the group of young women out for a fun time and we have poor Laurie and it can't be a coincidence that the sort of bookish would be final girl character in a Halloween tinge story from Michael Doherty, who's clearly a horror fan. You know, it can't be a coincidence that she is named Laurie, I wouldn't think. No, no, yeah, I agree. But uh, I, I love the reveal at the end of that and the fact that, you know, the entire time you feel that she is being sort of chided into just going on a date and hanging out with a guy at a party. And we find out that it's something much more sinister than that. And yet what's great about it is that unlike a typical EC tale, which would have a protagonist, you know, um, sort of meeting a horrible fate in this case, the nasty surprise still sort of keeps our heroine a hero. Like we still cheer for her after it turns out that she is a monster because she is, actually ridding the world of another much more heinous type of villain, I think, which is Wilkins dressed as a friggin' vampire. And yeah. I got to ask the first time that you saw the movie, were you surprised by the fact that it was him under the mask? Because it completely floored me. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was caught off guard by that. Um, did not see that coming. Thought it was a separate character. Um, and so I, initially I thought it was a real vampire because this is a movie with other monsters in it. Um, so the first time you're introduced to that character, they're basically feeding on someone at the parade. Um, and I just assumed that that was a real vampire and it was sort of a, I mean, and also the fact that it's, you know, she's dressed as little red riding hood. There's like that. It's, it's much more allegorical in some ways than the other ones. Um, more like a fairy tale. Um, and it, I'm, I'm weird. And like, whenever I think of little, little red, uh, riding hood, I think of the company of wolves, have you ever oh, seen that yeah, movie? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a weird reference, but I think of that movie because I, you know, that is very much a coming of age story. And I think Halloween invites coming of age, right? Because of all these things we're talking about, like your repression and your your sort of innocence versus your maturity. And this this story more than the others, I think, is is obviously more about that and like kind of the sexual awakening that's constantly being referred to, like the sort of revealing outfits of her older sister and her counterparts versus her sort of more modest in comparison costume. And they're all talking about their sexual exploits and Paquin's character is more quiet and introverted. Um, and as the night drags on, her kind of having to break away and and achieve adulthood on her own, not relying on her sister. And then when she kind of comes face to face with the, you know, the vampiric character, um, her innocence, you know, are the audiences, you know, when I was first watching, I saw her innocence as a hindrance, right? Like it's attracting this vampire to her. Um, What I love about the subversion of that is like her innocence isn't, isn't a you know detractor or a disguise it, well it's a disguise it's a it's a weapon to protect her maturity and kind of once that innocence is invoked by the outside party it becomes like a vehicle for her underlying strength um, she's revealed to be the predator and the other never saw it coming because of her outward innocence and that is so great so, that little red riding hood winds up becoming the big bad wolf you know yeah contained yeah. in one package i love that yeah yeah and it 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 allows her to sort of achieve the adulthood that she so desperately wanted, but it shows how adulthood is still a balance of both personas, right? It's not you, you stop being one thing and become another. You're an amalgam of all of your experiences and you can't be mature without being immature first. And and those sentimentalities that are part of each one kind of help form what you're going to become. And you need to call upon, you know, aspects of yourself from both sides of the spectrum from time to time. And I think that movie represented that duality really, really well. Oh, the movie, that, sh- that segment of the film represented that probably more obviously than the other ones. Um, but do you think in her case that ultimately what, you know, what is considered by her sisters here is her ultimate loss of innocence. Do you think that's going to coincide with her becoming, I don't know, a worse person in a way? Uh, because I mean, all of the other people there who were slaughtered at the party just seem like they were dumb, hapless guys looking for a good time. You know, they weren't necessarily yeah. evil serial killers, you know, so she killed a bad person, but what does, Laurie's life look like after that every full moon, I wonder. Well, I so my takeaway was that her so her sister and her friends were just like, get some guy, you know, like like seduce some guy and come to this party, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. Like that. That's kind of the whole thing. They're like, why won't you just go hit on a guy and seduce him? Like, it's really easy. We do it all the time. And they're like, see, watch us do it. And they walk up to literally random men that she, they just find and say, hey, welcome to this party. And the guy's like, yeah, sure. Right. And 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 yet we follow uh, we follow Paquin's character uh, and and she won't do it. She refuses constantly, even to the point where they're like, come on to the party. We'll find someone for you. I'm sure there's extra guys there. She's like, no, no I'm going to do it on my own. I took that as she didn't want to take an innocent life. Like she wanted to wait for the situation to 
come that she'd be able to do what her family and her, I guess, lineage called for her to do, but to do it her own way. Um, and that's what makes her an empowered character and not a passive character, which she seems like at the beginning. Um, and so, like, to me, when she's walking down that path all by herself, dressed as Little Red Riding Hood on Halloween night, she is inviting a predator. She wants to find that person. That's who she's looking for. And the reason she, I guess one could say, well, why would she allow herself to get bit if she's that powerful or whatever it is? I think it's she She wanted to make absolutely sure that this was the right person to, to uh, well, to, to murder, to <laughs> eat, potentially, I guess. And, uh, you know, so when that happens, that's when you know, she strikes. So I, I took that as like, that's how she's going to um, accept responsibility for what she really is. But at the same time, maintain the moral compass that this particular character somehow has. Um, and that's still following the rules. Like she found her own way to follow her rules and not compromise who she actually was. That final sequence is just amazing. Not only do we have what I think is easily the sexiest werewolf transformation sequence uh, in all of film, but um, and one that looks like, you know, not terribly unlike the werewolf transformation in the Alan Moore Swamp Thing short story. Have you ever read that by any chance? Uh, I think it was the, oh, the original series back in the day. It was something like number 42. Thematically, it wasn't entirely different from Ginger Snaps. Um, oh. but No, I haven't read it. Yeah, the werewolf inside of the person actually sort of asserts itself and tears away its skin to mm. reveal the wolf underneath. Like, that's the transformation. And so when it actually started happening in this movie, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're actually doing that instead of, you know, just hair sprouting or whatnot. But, um, you know, not only that, but the practical effects in that sequence, and indeed the entire movie, are just amazing. Like, there are incredible practical effects throughout the entire movie, which... I think will only serve to make it feel more timeless as the years go on. You know, uh, we have werewolves and severed heads and Sam's face, which I'm pretty sure is probably animatronic at the end. And they all look amazing. And I don't know. Speaking of timeless, the whole movie seems to have been designed to not be pinned down to any one time period. You know, not really. I mean, maybe the automobiles. But it seems like Doherty took care to sort of make the film seem like it really could have happened at any time. And, you know, I don't, to me personally, I think that'll help it endure throughout the, uh, throughout the decades, hopefully. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's completely timeless. It doesn't rely on any specific technology that is of a certain time. It, there's not anything in the way of a pop culture reference for the most part, which I really appreciate. Um, and the fact that it's steeped in, Halloween tradition, you know, ancient tradition and how that shows up, um, you know, in in suburbia. That's not something that's ever going to go away, I hope. And I think it's something that just about every kid uh, can can relate to, um, you know, and, and as adults, especially horror fans, you know, that is a time I think any horror fan holds really, really dear and sacred is is being a kid at Halloween. Um, and the fact that that movie is able to elicit that same kind of feeling, like on top of all of the other great things it's doing, 
um, also adds to the timelessness of the film because you're you're brought back to a specific time in your own life. Um, and you're always able to sort of achieve that by way of this movie. Um, and that that will make it something that you'll forever want to watch and forever feel sort of warm and fuzzy inside when you do. Yeah, I, I do love the movie. And again, it just I don't know. It serves to further remind me that I really, really wish we had a sequel. And we did mention it earlier when talking about the sort of EC Comics connection. But there was, in fact, a trick or treat comic book. There was a comic book adaptation that came out uh, that's well worth seeking out for the artwork alone. But uh, more importantly, there was also a graphic novel sequel that came out called Trick or Treat Days of the Dead. And, you know, it was an anthology, too, but it told a number of new tales sort of set within the film's world and god there's there's great storytelling in it there's great artwork there's a drop dead gorgeous cover to it and uh up until this point it's pretty much the closest thing to a real sequel we've gotten sadly uh you know trick or treat 2 was announced some time ago and yet up until this point we haven't really gotten anything much in the way of updates so hopefully fingers crossed you know one day soon we'll hear something about it coming down the pike but uh i gotta ask have you read the uh the the original graphic novel adaptation or the sequel so I never read the original. I do have a, a copy of Days of the Dead, um, and I'm a huge fan of it. Um, it does very much feel like a sequel um, in a lot of ways. It it changes up the sort of storytelling a bit by going back in time and telling you sort of stories throughout the ages um, that all involve Sam and one of them to me sort of alludes to the creation of Sam. Yeah. I don't know if it's the actual creation of Sam. I don't know if I, you know, or, but it definitely feels like an er, like how Sam sort of spread. Um, and it's it's kind of like a, a doomed love story about a witch and uh, witch hunter and Halloween magic and all these great things. It takes place in like the 1600s. Um, but there's also, you know, it's what I love about the graphic novel is there's different like genres represented. Like there's a film noir yeah. one like that's so cool. It's about like a like a detective chasing a serial killer on Halloween. I'm like, man, I'd watch that movie just as is uh, in like the 50s. And then, um, you know, there's kind of a modern day one. I think it was called Monster Mash about like two boys who sort of find a bunch of monsters and kind of join them for like, uh, you know, what they do on Halloween and it kind of alters them in some way. And it's just a, it's, it's a really fun read. Um, but I agree with you. My, my biggest issue with graphic novel adaptations of films or sequels to films is it, it just makes me want to see them as films. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I read and I, and I, and that's not slighting graphic novels at all. I think it's a, fantastic medium i agree with you i think like any fan of trick-or-treat should should go out i mean it's not expensive you can get on amazon for not very much and get this book and read it it's a quick read um it expands on the original it it it, it's very well written the artwork is great but it's just something visceral for me about watching a movie and thinking about this stuff is actually existing that really really and it, it shows that it has legs i think that's the best thing i can say about it is it proves that there's more stories to be told in the trick-or-treat universe and sam is a character that i just want to see so much more of yeah absolutely and it's worth noting that around the same time that that came out there was also a krampus 
graphic novel that wasn't a sequel so much as it was kind of a sidequel. Um, it's funny. If you read the Krampus graphic novel, you are filled in on other events that happened during the same night that, uh, you know, that the, the, the events of the movie uh, take place in. Like, it's, it's a fun supplement. And weirdly enough, for the longest time, I'd assume Krampus was going to be an anthology, like a Christmas horror anthology. And uh, I don't know why. Maybe it was just because it was Doherty's involvement. But ultimately, it wound up being just the one story. But the graphic novel is actually an anthology, not unlike Trick or Treat. Um, and it's, God, it's so much fun, too. And I think Doherty actually had a hand in writing each of those novels, too. Yeah, he did. Um, and he writes a really great forward. I haven't read the Krampus one. I'm gonna have to seek that out because I'm a huge fan of Krampus. It's fantastic. Um, it is so good yeah. that much like you said a moment ago, like I wanted it to be its own film because the stories that are told in the graphic novel are that strong and that worthy of being. Well, it's worthy of being a film sequel to stand right alongside the uh, the original movie. Wow. Well, here's hoping <laughs> <laughs> one day, someday. All right, sir. Well, hey, I think we've just about reached our time. Can I ask, do you have any final parting thoughts on Trick or Treat? Um, no, I think it's, you know, it's a film that invites us into, you know, the the holiday of Halloween made real. Um, it, it has no clear line between reality and myth. Um, and it, that makes it very special. I think it offers us a window into kind of the very real fears of accepting and becoming the person, you know, you are the one you're meant to be, or maybe even the one that you're running away from. (laughs) By the way, I think, um, the holiday and what this film represents, despite the dependence on costuming and, and sort of dressing up like something you're not, it's all about exposing those things about yourself and the world around you um, that we all too often ignore or tell ourselves can't be true. Um, and it, it, it's, it's about opening your mind to something you don't understand. And that, I think, is something that as a kid, we, it was much easier to accomplish. And as a, an adult, we forget. And when we sit down to watch Trick or Treat, um, we're able to recapture that feeling again. And I think whether we can put words to it or not as horror fans, that's what makes this film so special. All right. I think that is pretty much the perfect summation of this chat and that movie, sir. Now, can I ask, where can folks find you at online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Yeah. Um, so Twitter is where I am mostly active. I am at Paul is great 2000. Uh, yeah. Very modest screen name, as I always point out. Humble. Uh, yeah. Very humble. <laughs> um, <laughs> I made my choice and I'm stuck with it. So there we are. No. <laughs> um, but no, I'm very active. I You can read all my ramblings and horror movie tweets and live tweets and whatnot uh there uh there's a link to my little blog paul spooky blog on that and then i also on occasion write for as you pointed out at the beginning screamcast.com um i do occasional episodes of the dead ringers podcast so i will be reoccurring there and can you tell Uh, people exactly what the uh the sort of conceit of the dead ringers podcast is because i think it's pretty great yeah yeah um 
so it's a double feature podcast. Uh, we pick two horror films that are uh, that we feel have ties, you know, kind of DNA shared between them, but are unlikely pairings. Um, so, for example, um, we did Shivers and Slith- Slither. Uh, so 1975's uh, Shivers and 2007's uh, Slither, uh, movies that you don't necessarily see side by side as being ones that share a lot in common, um, but that you know really do share some fundamental elements and that I think when you watch them back to back kind of expand your understanding of what each of them are doing. Most recently, we did The Stepfather and The Guest, um, which was a great really fun thing to record that was a fantastic Um, episode yeah and and for me just being on the podcast like when i sit down to watch these movies i don't really know what i'm gonna get out of the pairing sometimes you know and and it's such a cool revelation to watch these movies back to back and then go oh my gosh and have these kind of moments of clarity where i see what they share so it's a great listen um for horror fans i think it invites cool pairings it's an appropriate month to dive into it um and if you do uh please uh let us know on uh twitter uh it, dead ringers has its own twitter handle as well i think it's dead ringers pod and uh let us know what you get out of it because that's what this is all about promoting discussion and kind of looking at horror films in a, a new and unique way all right well sir thank you again so much for being on the show thank you for having me it was a blast man all right, and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, rate and review us on iTunes, tell your friends about us, and scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Happy Halloween! Screw you!